Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson, and welcome to Voices of Reason. On this episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, we're joined by Brittany Johnson. She's a news anchor and reporter for ABC4 News here in Salt Lake City. And we have a number of things we kind of want to talk about today, but at least locally here, one of the things, and it's probably a problem that's happening or an issue that's uh, prevalent around the country, is what we're looking at now that August is uh, upon us and, you know, back to school is coming. How in uh, in this era of COVID-19, are we going to have our kids go back to school, particularly since they left early when this all kind of transpired uh, back in the spring? How does it look going forward? Are we going to have them in schools, actually in person, or or do we do some combination of online school and in person, or is it just going to be all online from here forward? So uh, I guess I'm going to ask one of you guys, who, who wants to start in on this? Go for it, Brittany. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I just think everything is so interesting here and I love watching how things develop Um, as I'm out there covering these protests from teachers saying we want to go back to school we want to be able to teach our kids in classroom because that's how they're going to get the best education but at the same time same time we have to protect ourselves And from the teachers that I've been speaking with, they feel that there aren't enough protections in place to protect them, the children, and teachers and children as well who are high risk. Um, And it's also interesting that this week, Granite School District teachers were out here protesting because they want an alternating school schedule where some children are going to school on Monday, Wednesday, and then the other children are going to school Tuesday, Thursday in person. And the days that they're not in school in person, they're teaching them online. Um, so that's what they wanted. And I thought it was interesting that the same day, parents in Davis County School District who have that alternating school schedule were protesting against it. And they want their children in school every single day. So it's just a lot going on. Um, I think it's all interesting. And then I also read something last night. There was um, a woman who wrote and she wrote a blog and she's a nurse. Her husband is a teacher. And she was saying, it's time for teachers to go back to school. 
She said, um, nurses, doctors have been on the front lines. Grocery store workers have been on the front lines. It's time for teachers to get back in and teach and get back to normal. So, I think that's a pretty cavalier attitude to have about that, to be honest Well, with you. <laughs> you know, I understand that idea, but what she's not considering is that grocery store workers, at least my grocery store that I go to, they have been given PPE by their employer. Their employer took um, safety measures that you can actually see. Uh, there's, gla- there's a plexiglass between us. Uh, they've given their uh, employees gloves and, um, you know, a, a gown, a face mask. They have unlimited access to hand sanitizer and all kinds of cleaning products. And they have a protocol that they abide by, right? Like the store gets professionally cleaned every single night and sometimes uh, midday. And um, I just think, and I I think there's probably similar access to PPE and cleaning materials in a hospital or in a clinic or wherever a nurse or doctor is working. What I have heard from teachers is, I, I talked to a special ed teacher a couple days ago who has been given one N95 mask and a uh, plastic shield and two of the, you know, the regular face masks that that everybody wears, the little paper ones, right? Like the surgical mask. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying to you, that is not enough PPE. And that's the issue that teachers are having is they don't have, I, I know teachers who are building their own barriers between desks that are coming up with ways to keep themselves and their students safe. And that's the problem. In, in hospitals, in grocery stores, in restaurants, companies are taking every precaution and you can see it and you can outline it and you can, sh- you can show how you're keeping employees safe. You cannot do that in schools. Every school dis- district is different. There's some school districts where they've been provided enough PPE or they've been given face shields or um, access to things that make them feel comfortable about going back. I don't know a teacher who doesn't wanna go back. I know teachers who don't feel safe going back because they don't have the equipment that they need to ensure their safety and the safety of their kids. Well, the, the thing that's interesting to me is, first of all, anybody telling everybody else, you go do your job and I don't care how you do it, you just do it, is <laughs> just complete and utter nonsense. Mm-hmm. But let's think, let's think of schools, for instance. We were talking a place where you're in a closed environment, mm-hmm. uh, in close proximity, and in a in classroom, you have minimum, for, except in a rural school district, in a city school district or a suburban school district, you'll have at least 20 people, maybe 40. There's no way you can get uh, six, six people, I mean, six feet away from each of those people. It's just not possible. And you have this on different floors, on these large, on a large scale, thousands of children. Mm-hmm. And the, the notion that you should order somebody to go back to school in any cir- circumstance is ridiculous to me, especially since you're not going to be taking care of them if they get sick. What, what, what should happen is if, they, if the school districts don't come up with a plan that is going to be as protective of not just the, the students, but of the, uh, of the teachers and the staff who work in these environments, then I don't know that you can do it safely. Because certainly if, if you're in a, a school district like Jordan or Granite, where, I mean, Salt Lake, there's, there's no way you're going to be able to manage thousands and thousands of students. and hundreds and hundreds of us uh, teachers and staff in a way that's going to be uh, safe enough to prevent some kind of crazy outbreak, uh, you know, day Mm -hmm. after day. It would be a a nightmare, I would think. And consider that, you know, a grocery store is a private business and it can say, you have to wear a mask to come in. Medical facilities require a mask. You can't go in without a mask. And, And they can enforce those rules. 
Look at the issues with schools. Brittany, you've been out there covering it. There are parents who don't want their kid to wear a mask to school. So how do you reconcile that? When a teacher feels like they, I know teachers who just have finished uh, cancer treatments and they wanna go back and teach their kids, but they want the kids to wear masks. What if they have kids in that classroom that their parents are like, we, we feel like that's an infringement on our rights. Then it is, they should stay at home. <laughs> and then that brings up another point. If you have children who are learning online, and then children who are learning in the classroom, I just feel truly that there's going to be a wider gap in learning. You're not going to get the same education from a teacher who's teaching in person and then coming up with material to put it online. You can't ask the same questions when you're teaching online, or I'm sorry, students can't ask those real-time in-person questions like they can do in the classroom and one of the teachers just frankly said you're not going to get the same education online if you were to be in the classroom and then to me that brings up another point for children who may not have the money to have the best internet connection at home um, then what are we doing with laptops some districts are able to provide them some aren't there's districts who have more money than others. Mm -hmm. And then what about the children who are trying to learn at home who have five or six other siblings and they're all in the house at once? Everything's going on. You can't concentrate as you were going to be able to in schools. I just think this is just going to widen the gap between the have and the have nots. I agree with you because it's not just a matter of do you have good enough internet? I mean, people are talking about you know, I need to go out and, and I'll, I'll, I'll take my minivan and I'll become a hotspot for kids to do homework. Okay, you're asking my kid to then go to a parking lot and do his or her homework in 95 degree heat in a car. Or wait or till December a, when it's zero. Well, I mean, that's a different issue. I mean, hoping we have better solutions by then, but right now one of the solutions is hotspots. So you're asking these kids, I don't know, I, I've tried writing my story or doing an interview in my car in the summer, and I have the option of turning it on and having air conditioning. I try not to, uh, to, to be a little green about it. But there's times where I thought, or I've been waiting, like when the vets opened, you have to wait in your car. I've been waiting in my car for like 10 minutes, and I'm like, I can see how people die in their cars, right? And, and you're asking kids to do their homework there? Have you tried riding a story in a car? Have you tried doing any, you know, anything other than surfing your phone in your car? <laughs> right. it, it's ridiculous. But I know teachers who are trying to make lesson plans for kids who are doing their homework on a phone because they don't have a computer. And if they get a computer, then they have to have technical support to help them with that computer because their parents may or may not know. My parents wouldn't have known how to help me on a computer. Right. You know, I mean, I think there's a myriad of issues and, and the, my problem with the discussion in school board meetings and, and, and amongst parents is it's all or nothing. I want it my way or, you know, we're just shutting the thing down and everybody can just, you know, fend for themselves. Well, uh, obviously we're not going to solve this today, but I, there, we just, there's no way under the circumstances right now, they're going to be able to go back to school unless they come up with a plan, a very detailed plan that is going to uh, consider all the things we just brought up. When we come back, we will jump to another topic that is uh, big news locally and is probably happening in a lot of places around this country, talking about uh, law enforcement 
and some issues that uh, communities are having with how, uh, again, people are being dealt with and lives are being taken and little justice is, uh, is occurring. You're listening to Voices of Reason. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold season three, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. We're back with Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. And on this episode, we're joined by Brittany Johnson, news anchor and reporter with ABC4 News in Salt Lake City. And uh, this last time we talked about uh, back to school now, we want to jump to a topic that's locally uh, been uh, pretty big here in that uh, in a small burg of Cottonwood Heights, it's like typical suburbia anywhere in America, they have had a, a bit of civil unrest, which to me is very funny because in the in the... Uh, wake of George Floyd and global protests and demonstrations, some of which have uh, involved extra police and uh, tear gas and all kinds of nonsense. This one isn't quite to that level, certainly, but it does begin with, sadly, a, a similar and uh, a very familiar story that has been tragic. A young man uh, was killed by police in 2018, and his family, his family still feels as though they haven't received justice for uh, their loss and uh, they they are they have taken to the streets to try to hear their vo- have their voices heard and they've been met by a lot of resistance from local law enforcement in, in the way they have been protesting and there's also this side thing where a, a local council member and the police chief have kind of had this uh, beef going back and forth and so that there's that in play as well so uh, I, I again I'm passing it off to you ladies what where, where do you want to even begin with this one Well, I think the Cottonwood Heights situation actually reminded me of um, the, my daughter lives in Portland, you know, and the situation in Portland, which is a mostly white city, right? And so Cottonwood Heights is what I would consider a mostly white community. And so you have this piece, and we've had these before, I think Harriman and and South Jordan have had these protests. And I just think that it, I think it's interesting to see uh, these suburbanites out protesting police. Um, the lack of accountability, I guess, is really what they're protesting. Yeah. And and I guess um, what surprised me is that this one turned violent because we've seen these in really white communities and they've pretty much gone off without a hitch. The, they march where they want to march. They bring kids. They have, like in this case, they had a dance party planned. And um, I think the shocking thing about this was that it's almost like they were looking for a confrontation because they told the people to get out of the street. People mostly got out of the street, but they protested a little bit. Um, and then they basically got into a confrontation about this. Are you in the street or are you on the sidewalk? And, um, and it got so violent. I mean, people were bloodied and bruised, including... Well, but I, okay, let's... Yeah. I think uh, violence is a word that's thrown around a lot, by the way, and I'm, I'm a little uh, perturbed by that, but... I would say you're right. It, it did get contentious. There was some mild, what I would consider pretty minor 
violence, mm -hmm. which I would suggest, to be honest with you, from at least what I've been watching, it was uh, instigated, as is often the case, by the police. Well, there was a city councilwoman who said she got throat punched in the throat, right. and the camera was knocked from her hand, and then the father of the kid who was killed, uh, I saw his mugshot, and he's, you know, he's bloodied up. And so, to me, what what is always uh, kind of the the rub here is that police often instigate the violence because if if you don't do exactly what they say, then they feel the need to put their hands on you. Now, these are people walking down. It's a suburban street again, right? This is all this is doing is inconveniencing some people on the street. We're not talking about any fire violations. There's, 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 and they were otherwise having a dance party for goodness' sake. I, uh, I this is not the way I've learned how to protest, by the way, but. It, it is what how these folks do it. All they had to do was do what they've done in other cities, like particularly Salt Lake, just block off that street so mm -hmm. that traffic has to be diverted. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a short term inconvenience, and the people who happen to live on the street, they can uh, still probably manage some way to let them be in the street, not but just maybe not take up all of it. That's part of what protest is to bring to attention to those around. Uh, the, the place that uh, is being affected, they need to be inconvenient so that they pay attention. And it, it is, like I said, it's a short-term thing. If you don't do that, then people will otherwise just ignore you and say, oh, well, it doesn't affect me because now all I can do is just watch them go down the street and I don't even have to pay attention to them. If you don't do something a little different, then you won't gain any traction in trying to get people to pay attention to the issue that you're trying to bring to attention. I was gonna say that too, a protest is supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. It's not, I mean, how else are you going to bring about change? And then my issue with this is just that, and it's probably something so small, but I'm looking into the issue of the protesters, the police are saying the protesters need to walk down the street on the sidewalk and they're in the street. Salt Lake City PD has told me before they are allowed to walk in the middle of the street. They are allowed to disrupt traffic, traffic if needed. But like you said, they are, Salt Lake City PD is blocking off those streets for them to protest. But I guess it's not the same in Cottonwood Heights. Um, the ACLU, they have a thing up there about how you're supposed to protest. And they say you can walk in the street, but you're not supposed to disrupt traffic. But I'm also wondering, is there a law in Utah? I'm trying to find that says how you're supposed to protest. Are you allowed to walk in the middle of the street? Um, are you, Or do you have to be on the sidewalk? I'm also looking at um, rules for journalists, how we're supposed to cover these. And a rule does say a protest is still considered peaceful, even if they're in the middle of the street disrupting traffic. And this could be a small nugget here, but I think that's what led up to this confrontation between the police and those protesters out there. And then people who live in the neighborhood just feeling uncomfortable and inconvenienced and that's when they start calling the police because they can't back out of their driveway to get somewhere and so th that's that's the rub here right i mean the idea is okay fine they could they couldn't get out now you as for safety reasons they should then come up with a solution to allow those people to uh, have entrance and exit from their uh, neighborhoods while still allowing the other folks in that neighborhood to be able to have their protest 
in a way that at least again brings you know fair attention to their the issue that they're trying to raise and and i feel like the, the police oftentimes rather than coming up with a solution like uh salt lake has done uh, they they try to create a confrontation and say we're not what they really want to say is we're not going to have this here we're going to control this you know and and for a small place that, that is otherwise insignificant uh, uh salt lake uh cottonwood heights even in this area uh the police want to have this kind of uh they want to strong arm people to make them uh think that you know somehow we're in control of all of this and you guys are going to pay uh listen to what we have to say otherwise you know we're going to you know bring the hammer down and when you see uh, you know, an old, middle-aged, relatively overweight uh, police chief get out of his car to go confront uh, a, a woman who's a city council member because they have some argument uh, because, based on some charges and, and a case that he's brought against the city uh, for, uh, regarding some, some job issues. It just seems to me that in this case, law enforcement looks pretty petty in how they're handling this. And again, whenever you uh, decide to instigate violence, when you then say uh, no one else can put their hands on you, I, I find that uh, that contradiction very troubling. But what's the law? Are you allowed to walk and protest in the middle of the street? Or do you have to stick to the sidewalk? Well, but it, and, and also do you have though, to just do, give them a fine? But also do you have to do what police officers say? I saw a video, a guy who uh, he records police incidents for uh, Utah Cop Watch. And he was asked to move to a sidewalk by a police officer. He did so, a sergeant in Salt Lake City. And then they got into it a little bit and, and the cop felt like he was disrespectful. So he told him to go across the street. And the guy said, because the cop was blocking his view and he said, you're blocking my view. Can you leave me alone? And the police officer, you can see this whole contempt of cop thing brewing. And this went on for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes where he basically threatened to arrest the guy if he didn't go across the street. And the guy said, no, I'm here, I'm working, I'm a member of the press, I'm gonna videotape this incident and I can't see the incident from across the street. He's on a public sidewalk, he did as the cop directed him and it's, it wasn't enough. And so at what point, and I think that's the reason people are protesting, we don't have any faith in the processes. We don't have any, like, like Brittany's saying, what's legal, what's illegal? How, how can you protest the right way, um, protest by, definition is to be disruptive it's to get attention it's to do something to cause people to you know deviate notice, from their normal right. from their normal whatever right you don't protest so people will ignore you <laughs> you know and that's the problem and so you i think you can create lots of different crimes or you can handle the way salt lake city has at times not at all the time but at times where they have said we'll block up the streets we'll let people have their say We'll let them exercise their First Amendment right. But I don't think that, I, I, I think you see it in Portland too. It doesn't take much for the police to instigate something. You don't do what they say. You're technically, you know, they can, they, I've seen charges for obstruction of justice, for, um, you know, interfering with a police officer, not following a lawful command. There's all these laws on the books that allow police to, basically charge you with, you know, arrest you for something, and then it's up to the DA, and as we see in Salt Lake City, there's a, some people facing first-degree felonies and gang enhancements for rioting, um, and, and it's, it's, I think it's a pretty telling thing that your DA who said there need to be police reforms so we can hold police accountable, he has the option of what charges to file, and these are 
you know, basically the same penalty as murder and rape and, you know, horrible crimes, violent crimes. Well, again, I say it's, it's to me, it's uh, the irony here is in a country uh, founded on protest and demonstration mm -hmm. against what they felt was inequity and, uh, you know, just the notion that we have now come to a point where we don't want others to express their opinion unless they do it in the way they want you to, which would then uh, the right be, way. Uh, yeah. be ignored. Exactly. This is how we're operating today. It seems antithetical to how this country was founded. we got to move on to the next topic. You're listening to Voice of the Brief. Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson, and we're back with Voices of Reason. Joining us today, Brittany Johnson, news anchor and reporter for ABC4 News here in Salt Lake City. And uh, up next, we're going to talk about kind of a big uh, thing in, in, in the world, uh, in the little world of Salt Lake City and Utah news. Uh, a big happening occurred with the, the largest uh, newspaper organization here in, in our state. The where, largest daily. The yeah. lar largest daily, that's mm -hmm. right. And, and I would suggest, I haven't had a chance to work with uh, Jennifer. And so, uh, Amy, I'm, I'm going to have you kind of explain what, yeah. what exactly happened. Yeah, I was on, I worked last night and uh, I, I saw it on Twitter first <laughs> and then um, ended up writing the story for the Deseret News. But uh, Jennifer Napier-Pierce submitted her resignation to the Salt Lake Tribune's uh, board on Monday. It was accepted on Tuesday and uh, she let the staff know about that on Wednesday. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I think the thing the, my first initial thought was, uh, you know, we need more women and uh, people of color leading news organizations. It impacts everything. You think that it doesn't matter. It does. We need more women in, at, at every level in news organizations. I think news organizations um, tr are trying to hold other agencies, businesses, and government agencies accountable uh, for their lack of diversity, and we are incredibly uh, we lack diversity in every way, uh, economically, politically, uh, racially, gender-wise. And I think I just felt like that was a huge loss to the community that um, there's the second woman to lead that paper is now uh, stepped aside. And they do have an interim editor, and I think he's a, a, a man who's been there, I think it's a paper since 1984. Probably a great journalist, but he is a man. You know... So, uh I've had a chance to work with Jennifer. She and I uh, worked at the same uh, public radio station uh, a couple of years back, and uh, she's a very smart woman, obviously, and she's done a good job leading uh, the, the Tribune in some pretty challenging times, and it's gotten them to move to what may be uh, the, the way a lot of newspapers choose to operate in the future, and that is going to a, a not-for-profit model. And uh, hopefully this works out well. We're, we're going to see how it goes. It's, it's only been a short time, relatively, uh, that they've been uh, under this particular kind of um, uh, you know, uh, business model. But uh, we're really hoping it works because that means more newspapers will be able to survive and, and go on into the future. I, I, as you just described, you know, she, uh, she's grown up, she was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. However, she was adopted, so she was, her, um, her lineage is a Pacific Islander, I believe Samoan. Uh, it's either Samoan or Tongan. I'm it's sorry. Tongan. Uh, Tongan. Her dad is Tongan. So, yeah. To know that uh, now a woman of color and uh, of great intellect, obviously, uh, she went to Stanford. She's just exactly what this 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 uh, this environment needed, and, and uh, being a strong advocate for independent voice 
and, and, and reasonable and, and strong journalism. You, you can't really argue in, with that. To think now that we are kind of, we're going back by not having her in that seat or someone like her in that seat, we probably get more of the same. And that is not to say that others can't be good journalists, good leaders, but you, you want to see uh, a wide variety of diversity that offers new ideas, uh, different kinds of perspectives that you might not otherwise get if you have, generally speaking, middle-aged or older white men uh, running your organization. Brittany? So what does this mean for the future of the Tribune? I mean, oh, I think that's probably the biggest question, right? And I, I mean, under her leadership, they have, uh, you know, um, navigated that ownership change. They've gone to nonprofit. They've won a Pulitzer Prize. I think you've seen a tremendous focus on issues that women care about. Um, I, I think that, I think all news organizations in this community could do better with racial issues. And, and, and I want people to understand, and I'm saying this as a white person, you cannot know what you don't know. <laughs> you know, I have sat with women who've been sexually assaulted and written about, you know, the, the terror and the trauma and the long-term and the life-altering effects of that. But I didn't experience that. And it doesn't, it's not a flaw in me that I can't write from that experience, but that's what I'm saying when we talk about diversity of culture. Because when you come at something, I, I, when I was down on the Navajo reservation, doing my very best to bring to our readers uh, what I think is a very critical, they're very critical issues um, uh, with the COVID outbreak on the Navajo Nation, especially in this strip of the reservation that's on in the Utah, inside Utah. Um, but there was a woman down there who I read and I follow on Twitter and she's a, a Navajo journalist and she's come back to the reservation to write about the COVID outbreak. And she said, at the end of your reporting, you go home to your house and your community. You don't live on the reservation. You don't have to figure out how to get groceries or where to get gas or what the lockdown for 57 hours is gonna be like for you and your family. And that's the difference. Her reporting will always be more authentic than mine. And it's not because I'm a bad journalist or she's a better journalist. It's because she's writing from her experience and I'm not. And there are other things that, I mean, Jason and I have talked about this. It's, it's just, it's critical that newsrooms become more diverse at every level and management is absolutely as critical as the people out there looking for stories. I mean, Brittany, I don't know, is TV in the same situation? TV is, I think, in the same situation, but not as, I, what in the same situation as what? What are you asking? In, in the same situation as they need to diversify it every, like in management, in middle management, in reporters, in staff. Definitely. They, I would say, especially management. Okay. Because I, mean, I think you have to start from the top and work your way down. Mm -hmm. um, well, partly because what's it like for you? I mean, are you often the only black woman in the room or are there other black women that you work with? So there's at our station, I would say our station is one of the most diverse stations out here. Well, I'll go on and say it, the most diverse TV station out here mm -hmm. in front of and behind the camera. And we can still improve. I do have, we have um, Nicole Newman. She's our weekend reporter. And she reports three days a week on the weekdays also. Um, and then we have me. And then <laughs> our boss, 
Our news director, he is black and Filipino. Our general manager is white. Our assignment editor is white, um, older white men. Um, and that's it as far as our management. And we have, gosh, if someone wrote an article looking at the different news stations out here and it was titled White Out in Salt Lake City. And then it came to our news station and had my picture saying that we, I was the only black woman out here reporting on TV, which they did miss Nicole. But that's a problem. Why is it that all the news stations out here, everyone looks alike? I think there needs to be more diversity because as you know, when we're in these editorial meetings, a lot of things get left out or a lot of people don't understand why it's important for us to cover certain stories or they just get swept under the rug. And now that we have this news director who is black and Filipino, who is who grew up poor, and he will tell you that, he, he says he lets everybody talk in the editorial meeting and he lets us get our ideas out. And then he comes back and says, well, what about this? Why don't you guys care about this? Why don't you guys feel that this is important? Let me tell you why this is important coming from a black man, black and Filipino man, who grew up poor, who came from nothing. Let me tell you why we're going to cover this. So it's just been a different dynamic in our newsroom the last year and a half or so. I will say that I am the uh, only the, the, the third black person to ever work for the Deseret News on, as, on a daily basis, uh, not being an intern. And so that to me has always been pretty troubling. And, and for the past many years, I've been the only for over a decade now. Uh, working there. It's just, it's, it's been difficult to watch, not just in Salt Lake, this is around the country. There's been just a lack, uh, particularly in, in print journalism anyway, of people uh, of color uh, in prominent positions and certainly in roles that, uh, you know, everyday news gathering uh, has been diminished so much. And I, I feel as though we're losing in that way because we don't have as much diverse coverage as we might be able to have. We're going to have to uh, move on to the next topic. When we come back, we're going to share our thoughts on the loss of one of the last great civil rights leaders. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Welcome back to Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee along with Amy Donaldson. Joined today by Brittany Johnson, news anchor and reporter for ABC4 News here in Salt Lake City. And uh, on this last uh, segment, I, um, I wanted to share a few thoughts on the loss of um, Georgia Representative John Lewis, who passed away last week. Um, you know, years ago, I went with my family on, and I, my, my mom is from uh, rural Mississippi, and I have a pretty deep uh, roots in that, uh, in that community. My grandfather's from there as well, as well as my grandmother. And so I spent a lot of time in the South. And I've uh, been to Alabama, Georgia, uh, Tennessee, Carolina, both the Carolinas. I mean, a lot, uh, actually. <laughs> Only place I haven't gone is Oklahoma, to be honest with you. So it, uh, it, it, uh, in Georgia, he is a legendary figure. And I had the opportunity to walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which was the site of what was the original Bloody Sunday, where civil rights uh, advocates and, and supporters who were trying to get the right to vote walked from Montgomery, the state capital, to Selma. 
and uh, along the highway, and they were met by uh, uh, state troopers and, and other law enforcement, and they literally were beaten bloody. John Lewis uh, had his skull fractured, and uh, it, it was it was one of the uh, seminal moments of the uh, of the civil rights movement back then. And what has always uh, resonated with me was whenever he talked about it, he said, you know, he spent his life getting in good trouble. And that is to say trouble that he knew was, was needed to get to the place where our country would be better. And when, when he did that, even though his parents told him they didn't want him to do it, they said, you know, he would, they, they were worried about him always and they thought he was doing the wrong thing because he, he, he could meet with uh, violence. He said uh, to his folks, I got to keep doing this because this is the right thing to do. And uh, I will miss his uh, sage wisdom and, and just courage and determination. And I, I know that uh, in my life, I will try to spend more of my time trying to get in good trouble so that our country is a better place. Um, I think for me, I'll jump in here and say that John Lewis was a reminder that we're not done. Um, but, you know, I often get... Um, discouraged by how little progress I feel like we've made <laughs> and how much backsliding we do like it's not um, you know I feel like we take one or two steps forward and then five or six backwards and um, I it's it can be an incredibly discouraging um, fight and I think that every time I heard John Lewis speak every time I heard him either recall his own experiences or talk about you know just the just what the battle in which we are engaged which is to make sure everyone has the same opportunities in this country, that we live up to the ideals of our founding. Um, I felt hope. I felt like um, it's possible. Like, it's okay that it's, we're still, I mean, I, I think when I read his last uh, letter to, to us uh, on the day of his, very, of his funeral, um, what got me was the paragraph where he said uh, that he had to go down and see Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington um, even though it meant going to the ho being admitted to the hospital the next day, he had to see it for himself that, uh, so that he could witness that truth is still marching on. And, um, and, that, and, and then when he said Emmett Till was my George Floyd, I, um, you know, I cried about that for like three days, that we're still, um, that we still have an Emmett Till, that we still have a, um, a you know, Floyd. Rayshard Brooks yeah. or a Breonna Taylor. Um, uh, that is the thing that just breaks my heart. Um, but it is in his wisdom and just his energy that I found some hope. And uh, that's what I'm holding on to right at this particular moment. Brittany? You know, something that he said um, back in the 60s while challenging segregation sticks out to me when he said, we do not want our freedom gradual. We want to be free now. And I still feel like people are still fighting for the same things that he shed his blood for. When it comes to voting, that's the main thing that I look about because um, the November 2020 election is just right around the corner. And Black Americans are still facing massive disparities and inequalities mm -hmm. and accessing the right to vote. I mean, why, do, when I look at it, there, why are people who have felony charges and convictions, why can't they vote? We're supposed to be giving them a second chance at life, but we give you a second chance, but you can't have your voice heard. You can't vote. Also, Black Americans face many barriers and places to register and to vote 
at all, staying on the voting rolls, having their mail-in ballots counted. It's just so many challenges still when it comes to things surrounding voting. Mm -hmm. And this man, he used his power to make a true difference in society. So lately, I've just been asking myself, what can I do? How can I use the power that I have? Or I don't really have that much power, but the platform that I have, you know, to make a true difference in our society. So that's just what I've been grappling with these last few days. Well, you know, uh, we don't have much time, but I, I will say that at least we know what we should aspire to. And we should use that example. And, you know, even though if, if we don't get there, like they always say, it may not get there, but keep trying, keep moving forward, keep trying to get to the place where one day uh, equality reigns and, and then peace will prevail. Now, we're going to bring you a tribute to John Lewis from NBC News. John Lewis's last words appeared in the New York Times in an essay titled, Together, You Can Redeem the Soul of Our Nation. John Lewis wrote the essay shortly before his death and requested that it be published on the day of his funeral. I'm Tremaine Lee. And this is Into America. Today, we're sharing those words, read by a friend and admirer of John Lewis, Morgan Freeman, on MSNBC's The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell. While my time here has now come to an end, I want you to know that in the last days and hours of my life, you inspired me. You filled me with hope about the next chapter of the great American story when you used your power to make a difference in our society. Millions of people motivated simply by human compassion laid down the burdens of division. Around the country and the world, you set aside race, class, age, language, and nationality to demand respect for human dignity. That is why I had to visit Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, though I was admitted to the hospital the following day. I just had to see and feel it for myself that after many years of silent witness, the truth is still marching on. Emmett Till was my George Floyd. He was my Rayshard Brooks, Sandra Bland, and Breonna Taylor. He was 14 when he was killed, and I was only 15 years old at the time. I will never, ever forget the moment when it became so clear that he could easily have been me. In those days, fear constrained us like an imaginary prison, and troubling thoughts of potential brutality committed for no understandable reason were the bars. Though I was surrounded by two loving parents, plenty of brothers, sisters, and cousins, their love could not protect me from the unholy oppression waiting just outside that family circle. Unchecked, unrestrained violence and government-sanctioned terror had the power to turn a simple stroll to the store for some Skittles or an innocent morning jog down a lonesome country road into a nightmare. If we are to survive as one unified nation, 
We must discover what so readily takes root in our hearts that could rob Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina of her brightest and best. Shoot unwitting concert goers in Las Vegas and choke to death the hopes and dreams of a gifted violinist like Elijah McLean. Like so many young people today, I was searching for a way out, or some might say a way in. And then I heard the voice of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on an old radio. He was talking about the philosophy and discipline of nonviolence. He said we are all complicit when we tolerate injustice. He said it is not enough to say it will get better by and by. He said each of us has a moral obligation to stand up, speak up, and speak out. When you see something that is not right, you must say something. You must do something. Democracy is not a state. It is an act. And each generation must do its part to help build what we call the beloved community. A nation and world society at peace with itself. Ordinary people with extraordinary vision can redeem the soul of America by getting in what I call good trouble, necessary trouble. Voting and participating in the democratic process are key. The vote is the most powerful nonviolent change agent you have in a democratic society. You must use it because it is not guaranteed. You can lose it. You must also study and learn the lessons of history because humanity has been involved in this soul-wrenching existential struggle for a very long time. People on every continent have stood in your shoes through decades and centuries before you. The truth does not change, and that is why the answers worked out long ago can help you find solutions to the challenges of our time. Continue to build union between movements stretching across the globe because we must put away our willingness to profit from the exploitation of others. Though I may not be here with you, I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you truly believe. In my life, I have done all I can to demonstrate that the way of peace, the way of love and nonviolence, is the more excellent way. Now it is your turn to let freedom ring. When historians pick up their pens to write the story of the 21st century, let them say that it was your generation who laid down the heavy burdens of hate at last and that peace finally triumphed over violence, aggression, and war. So I say to you, walk with the wind, brothers and sisters, and let the spirit of peace and the power of everlasting love be your guide. I want to say thank you, first of all, to our friend uh, Brittany Johnson for joining us. And join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about the show, please contact us via email at uh, vormed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast in all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. 
We love to get your feedback and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.